This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Peak Northwest, an outdoors and travel podcast by the Oregonian and Oregon Live, dedicated to the adventure and exploration of our beautiful Pacific Northwest. I'm Jamie Hale. And I'm Vicki Connor. Together, we take you to some of the most beautiful and interesting destinations in our region, discussing where to go, what to do, and places to see. And today, we're headed into one of the strangest environments in the Pacific Northwest, the wet and slimy tide pools of the Oregon coast. Vicki, tide pools are some of my favorite natural areas to explore. It's just like there's something so primal about them, yet so kind of alien as well, you know? Like, I love going out at low tide and hopping from rock to rock, peering down into these rich worlds of life found in tiny little pools along the coastline. You can see things like the the giant green anemones with their colorful tentacles and the spiky purple sea urchins, the weird little gooseneck barnacles and those adorable tiny crabs. I mean, there's just so much to see. There really is. And Jamie, you are definitely not alone there. Joining us today to talk about tide pooling is another Jamie, Jamie Kish, who is a marine biologist and a tide pool ambassador based on the Central Oregon coast. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us a little bit, how did you fall in love with tide pools? Oh, gosh, it it was, it started out really young. We, I moved from Pennsylvania back in the very early nineties and we came out here. My parents saw Oregon in a magazine. <laughs> They're like, That's what we want to raise kids. And they came out here and we'd never seen anything like a coast to begin with. I mean, there was like some lakes with beaches, but nothing like out here. And from a very young age, I think I was four or five um, coming down to the central coast from the Valley on weekends, just stole my heart. Um, the Oregon coast is incredible as is, but then the more you tighten your focus into these macro worlds of tide pools, it just somehow expands more. It's it's absolutely incredible. It's such a neat habitat and environment. So Jamie, tell us about your, your journey studying these places, studying marine biology. Where did, where did you go to do that? And, and in what direction did you decide to follow this love of the ocean? Yeah. So again, started really early. (laughs) Um, What was it? No, 1999, the Oregon Coast Aquarium in Newport started up a youth volunteer program. Um, Up until that point, they just had adult uh, volunteer interpreters, which are like the cool people you talk to at the tide pool and stuff inside the aquarium. 
but in 1999, they opened it up for youth volunteers. And so I believe I was 12 when I started uh, volunteering for the aquarium there. And that was just oh man it just i caught on fire like that's all i ever wanted to do the minute i started volunteering i was like this is it found it like here's my life uh and shout out to the awesome staff over the years at the oregon coast aquarium they just became such a nurturing um environment very family feeling uh it was just an incredible experience growing up essentially at the aquarium anytime i wasn't in school i was down at the aquarium um I started doing like research on octopus at the aquarium and things like that. And it just really took off. I became their youngest um, scuba diver on their teams at 16 and just hit the ground running from there. Uh, bounced over to college then once I graduated, uh, OSU, and then down here at the Oregon Coast Community College with their aquarium sciences program as well. Um, cannot say enough good things about that program. It's fantastic. It's so much more intimate than like a large state college setting. Um, and it's just like, a, you know, maybe 20, 30 people at a time that just want to get the really uh, niche kind of ins and outs of how aquariums work and animal care and especially, you know, like a focus on aquatic species. So it was an exceptional time learning there as well. I love that you kind of had this childhood dream and you really saw it through and right? this is your job now. That's awesome. I see all these, like some of my friends will send me memes of, you know, like it'll be that Lisa Frank dolphin and it's like all the 80 kids wanted to be marine biologist type of thing. And it's like, yeah. And I took that deathly seriously. I was like, this is, meant, this is what I'm doing forever. I found it and I just never had a need to look back. It's just it's just gotten me to all the places I want to be and around the marine locals that I want to be around. So it's just wonderful. So in your intro, we talked about you being a tide pool ambassador. What is that? <laughs> right. I had a tour of kids last year and they're like, where's the tide pool embassy? And I was like, that's a, I don't know. We will have to figure that out. <laughs> but I am an ambassador for it. Um, so I actually work for the Cape Perpetual Collaborative, which is a nonprofit organization in the area that actually essentially takes care of the Cape Perpetual Marine Reserve through outreach, uh, volunteer programs, these tide pool tours. Uh, so we're kind of a, a door where people can come in and have confidence and feel like you know, they can get out into the tide pools on their own after just, uh, you know, talking with us for a little bit or going on a tour type of thing. So a gateway to the marine reserve, if you will. So Jamie, when you're out there um, showing people tide pools or when you're out there on your own, um, what what kinds of creatures are you seeing out there? Well, all kinds. I mean, it really changes every single day. Um which is one of the things that I really enjoy about these habitats down here is how much they change constantly on a day-to-day -day basis and then throughout the seasons. Uh, the summer season is my favorite for tide pooling just because we have our low minus tides uh, throughout the summer months during daylight hours, which is really helpful. I'm not a huge fan of night tide pooling. 
sketchy. Um, <laughs> it's hard enough for me to stay up on my own two feet in the broad daylight. Uh, so I don't like to chance it too much by being like, let's turn the lights off. Um, so the things I love going out there to see, you're always going to see shore crabs. Shore crabs are anemones, giant greens, like you said before, Jamie, um, are aggregating anemone species. Gosh, what else? The urchins? There's lots of urchins right now. It's a whole thing. Uh, we can get into that later if you like. But yeah, there's there's so many wonderful little marine locals out there that you can see pretty much year round. But yeah, summertime is definitely the best. It exposes the most amount of intertidal habitats. So you get to see the low, low stuff that's for the most part underwater like 99% of the year. So it's pretty fascinating. And Jamie, remind us, um, where exactly are you based? I'm based out of Yahats. Uh, essentially, the Cape Perpetual Marine Reserve is my backyard and a bunch of us here. It's, it's such a neat place to live. I'm interested to know, how does tide pooling kind of differ, like if you go further south or further north, or is it very similar? That's an excellent question. And again, one of the amazing things about Oregon is you can literally drive, you know, an hour or two in any direction and come across a totally different kind of landscape and environment, um, which means more different kinds of adventures and things like that, things to see. And that's the same for the coast. Uh, the central coast is super unique to where we have a lot more rocky intertidal zones because of volcanic activity. So it just laid down an a lot of really nice basalt for us to be able to explore. And now the South Coast is uh, a lot more duny as you go south past Yauhats into Florence, a lot more sand dunes type environment, which is a totally radical different landscape. Uh, up north, you have things like haystack rock, like big sea stacks that, again, totally different kind of environment, um, excellent tide pooling. You, you can't go wrong. Either way, you go on the coast. Well, I, you know, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about what, what draws you to these, these areas, these intertidal areas. I mean, there's clearly a passion there. Um, what is it about them that, that you can't seem to get enough of? It might hark back to being a kid and just for whatever reason, the tide pools for me have always felt like a safe place that I can go. Um, which when we were tide pooling, Jamie, uh, I think at one point, or this might've been a different tour, the tours start to just really meld in my brain over the years. Um, but someone made comment about how I was in the water and like, isn't that cold? Aren't you afraid of things, you know, <laughs> nipping your toes and stuff? And it's like, no, I'm honestly infinitely more comfortable in the tide pools than I am up on a sidewalk here in town. So I just feel clumsy and clunky up here, but in the tide pools, I just feel uh, just kind of accepted for being who I am, which sounds cheesy, but I've always just felt comfortable there being who I am. My dorky, really passionate, nerdy self. So I love that. I, I do think that was me making that comment. And I will say that was because you were wearing sandals and socks into the wet tide pool on a oh, rainy day. The classic Oregon outfit. Sandals and socks. Just, so, my child self no. What when it what happened? But yeah, um again, the the cool water too, like the fact that it, it rarely gets above, let's say, fifty-two-ish degrees here on the central coast in the water. Again, there's something so calming to me about that cold water. 
um, it's, it's a very uh, effective anxiety reducer if you're not, you know, in like an active tide area where you're going to get washed out. <laughs> but being in the tide pools, um, yeah, it's just always been a really special place for me. Jamie, switching topics a little bit, uh, we've heard about tide pools kind of being in peril due to climate change. What can you kind of tell us about that? Gosh, I mean, we're seeing effects already playing out. Um, you look to the keystone species, like our ochre stars, keystone species being the indicator species that will have the first kind of wave of issues as far as things like climate change goes. Um, back in 2013 through, it, it's still going on, but the main really bad years were 2013 to about 2016 or so, um, the sea star wasting disease hit the Oregon coast, the whole Pacific Northwest. Um, and it just, we, we didn't know what was going on at the time. You would go out into the tide pools and our ochre sea stars, which are the orange, red, purple, beautiful babies that are out there all the time, um, they all started melting. It looked like white dripping wax almost. They were just losing their arms in mass numbers and they were all just melting and dying. And we had no clue what was going on and it was horrific. You'd go out into the tide pools and where you are used to seeing, you know, splotches of color and a bunch of life, it was just white dripping sadness and just arms all over the beach. Hundreds of sea star arms all over the beach. Just, it was horrible. It felt like an apocalyptic kind of situation. Um, if you're like, you know, really close to the tide pools and stuff, it was just like, what? My family, what's happening to everybody out here? It was, it was really shocking. Um, so that was one of the, that's a big, example of things like climate change and global issues kind of coming into play here on the coast. How, how are things playing out in the future? Like, I know that you hear a story like that, it, it seems very grim. And obviously, it's a very grim situation. Is, is when we kind of look to the future of how climate change continues to impact these intertidal areas, is it, is it that grim? Or is, is there any good news? How, how, how do things stand right now? That's an excellent question. Um, I, I'm not sure. I don't think anyone's overly sure. Even the people, you know, kind of at the forefront of studying all this as it's happening, um, it's intense. <laughs> but you can definitely see, even year to year, we what we started the tide pool ambassador program in 2020, and even the last couple years, there's been noticeable differences uh, in the tide pools summer to summer. Um, one positive thing I can say, though, is the Cape Perpetual Marine Reserve, um, there is an organization called PISCO who have been doing research in the area for the last 20 years, which makes the area um, really unique in that sense that we have extended data years and years ago. Um, so we can look at that into the sea star wasting disease years and then currently. And for whatever reason, the Cape Perpetual Marine Reserve area is the only place on the coast showing a positive trend for our sea stars. So we actually are recording numbers now that are that are putting the populations above pre-sea star wasting disease years, which is incredible. Wow. <laughs> it's that, I don't think many of us thought that was gonna be a reality, you know, even this soon. Um, so the sea stars are adapting or, you know, the, there's, there's a lot of hypothesis, hypotheses about 
what caused the sea star wasting disease. Um, a lot of things are pointing towards a virus spurred on by things like slight temperature changes in the water and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, we're there's there's a positive note at least there that within the marine reserve here at Cape Perpetua, they are trending upwards. Um, it can't be said about everywhere. There are also patches where there are still a lot of you know micro areas of sea star wasting disease that you can come upon, and it's it's still pretty shocking. But thankfully, those are you know a lot harder to come by these days. Um, so I'm curious for people who do want to go tide pooling, um, when and how should they do it? How should they get started dipping their toes in the water? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, it can be very intimidating. Like Jamie was saying earlier, it's a very alien environment. It's a totally different world. Um, and it's one that for all intents and purposes, like us as a human species, doesn't have a lot of interaction with just because these places are for the most part underwater all year round. Um, and so <laughs> it can be really intimidating, uh, very dangerous too at times, like Jamie was saying, slick. It's very slick out there. That alone, I think kind of uh, scares some people off from getting out into the tide pools, which is valid. Uh, you're just never gonna wanna walk on kelp. That's that's a huge first thing. Just don't walk on any of the kelps or algaes. Um, they're always going to be really slippy, slippery, a lot more prone to falling, especially you don't want to fall on the rocks. Yeah. They're so jagged and craggy, and we have very poor cell reception here. <laughs> it's intense. Um, but yeah, watch where you're walking. Low and slow is the way to go. Uh, Take in your surroundings. It it can be really exciting to get out into the tide pools. You just want to see like see as much as you can in a short amount of time because the tide does come in really quickly as well. So I recommend people go out at least an hour before the low tide hits. So if you get a local tide chart, uh, any of the you know, up and down the coast, the visitor centers in each town will have local tide charts for free, usually in just like a little drop box outside that you can pick up. Um, there's also some apps online that you can download. You can also jump on the NOAA website, N-O-A-A website, and they have accurate tide charts for up and down the coast. Um, get yourself acquainted with tides first, because going out there, you don't want to put yourself in a situation where you're going to get possibly swept out. Um, no one wants that. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, so get to know the tides. Look at the minus tides. They will be the ones in the tide chart with the little minus next to them. Let's say the tide chart says 8 a.m. I will start 6.30 or 7 a.m. I'd be out at the beach. And that way it gives you a good chunk of time before the tide starts turning and coming back in to where you have ample time to explore out there. Amazing. So if someone is specifically like, I really want to see, is it sea star, not starfish? Yeah, there's, I was yeah. joking with someone recently, like, there's a rebrand of Sea Stars <laughs> happening. <laughs> Not fish at all. Um, so Sea Star, we're trying to shift more into Sea Star mode. So if someone's like, I really want to see a Sea Star, what is their advice to the, like, you know, best places to look or something like that, if that's what someone's really trying yeah. to find? So sea stars, again, you're going to want to look for low tides. They are 
all the animals that I'm referring to throughout this entire thing are not going to be overly exposed when the tide is high. Um, it's just going to be ocean. You'll see beautiful ocean. Occasionally, there'll be a sea star that's higher up on a rock in the sun, but that's not overly common. Um, you're going to typically see them as the, as the tide starts dropping. They'll be in kind of the mid-tidal range. Uh, so again, look at your tide chart, go out during the low tide. It doesn't have to be a minus tide to see sea stars. Um, rocky places are going to be better for tide pools. So while the Oregon coast has big swaths of basalt, rocky kind of environments like that, um, that's where I would kind of pinpoint. So like Haystack Rock up north, um, there's some places down south, um, what like Samuel Boardman comes to mind that has big sea stacks and craggy rocky areas. Uh, even places in Florence, while they do have a lot of dunes down there, um, the Hesita Head area, awesome tide pooling. We actually are opening up tours this year for the first time at Hesita Head Lighthouse. Uh, so that'll be really interesting to be able to learn about the tide pools there, as well as talk about the history of the lighthouse. And there's a huge population of um, marine mammals down there like stellar sea lions and California sea lions at Sea Lion Caves. So that'll be a fun one to attend. But yeah, um, you really can't go wrong wherever you go on the coast. I would avoid overly flat sandy beaches. You're not gonna see as much in those areas. Look for the rocks. That's where it's gonna hold all the weight. I feel like on this podcast, you know, we, we mentioned the, the leave no trace principles a lot. Are there specific principles when it comes to tide pooling? Like look, but don't touch or, you know, just, Something along those lines? Yeah. yeah, there are. Another great question. Um, <clears throat> the first one that comes to mind <laughs> goes back to the sea stars, uh, but it can be applied for most of the animals out there. You're not going to want to pull any of these creatures off the rocks or out of, you know, if they're a lot of these animals out there function with big flat feet, kind of like a snail or like the sea stars and the sea urchins will have tube feet, which are like individual little suction cups and they have hundreds of them underneath their body that are hydraulically powered and that's how they move so all these things have some kind of mechanism to where they can stick onto these rocks really solid consider because they're being pounded by waves most of the time so they have to be able to really you know hold their ground uh, so you're never going to want to rip anything off of rocks um, especially the sea stars uh, which sadly is something we run into most of the time when we go to the beach during these tours is you'll find other people out there and it, it's, it's not probably any fault of their own. It's just not a commonly known thing. Um, but we try to really make sure that people know never to rip anything off the rocks. Um, as far as touching things, you can touch quite a bit out there. You can touch the sea stars. They're surprisingly rocky and hard, again, because they live in such a tumultuous area with a bunch of waves and driftwood floating around and stuff. So they're, they have a pretty solid armor on their outside. Uh, but things like the anemones, um, which can be kind of intimidating just because they look wild with all these tentacles and then just one big hole in the middle. Um, as far as those go, you're never going to want to stick anything in that, that central hole. It's an entrance and exit point for the animal. So um, it's kind of the equivalent of someone putting their entire arm into your digestive tract and then pulling it back out quickly. Not a good time for anyone. Uh, so 
don't put anything in the anemone holes leave them alone <laughs> so leave leave the anemone holes alone but you can give them little handshakes use two fingers and you can lightly put them against the tentacles of the anemone um and you'll feel like a sticky wet velcro kind of sensation it's it's a little freaky at first i'll be fully honest but you'll get used to it and uh it's pretty neat being able to touch them and the stickiness is actually caused by their microscopic stinging cells um the skin on our fingers is too thick for those cells to penetrate so it just feels sticky and grippy um whereas if you were a fish or a marine vertebrate with you know really thin skin that will zap you and essentially paralyze you and then you'll be eaten so <laughs> Hooray for our thick skin fingers. <laughs> this is this is what I'm talking about. All of this this crazy stuff out there. I mean, we think about like isn't it just wild? Yeah, like, yeah. It's it's like kind of a book or something, like a, a fantasy novel. It's but it's real life. <laughs> it's just wild. Yeah. The goosenecks come when when whenever someone mentions like the alien landscapes and stuff of the tide pools, I think the biggest ambassador of the weirdos would be the gooseneck barnacles because what on earth they're just so silly so silly well, okay you can't you some of those right you can't toss that out and not and not explain more you you gotta you gotta say some more about the gooseneck for, for those who know nothing about the gooseneck <laughs> barnacles what what are we talking about here so we're talking a, you know like a finger size leathery neck just hanging there <laughs> um and that's attached to the rock <laughs> on the end of that rubbery leathery neck is <clears throat> gosh i've had kids on the tide pool tour kind of describe it as dragon toes <laughs> it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a shell made out of calcium um it comes to this funny little point uh and yeah, that's the beak. They live upside down. They feed with their feet out of that, out of that shell. They're filter feeders, so they'll flick their feet out into the currents and try to catch little microscopic things and plankton and stuff. And that's how they'll eat. Um, the they also are edible. I didn't know this till a few years ago. I happened to see some some kind of documentary, and there's folks out in Italy. And first off, I didn't know goosenecks were in Italy. They're all over the place. Um, but in Italy, they are considered a delicacy over there. And there's people literally rappelling down sea cliffs with just like huge waves crashing and stuff. And they're rappelling down, trying to get bunches of gooseneck barnacles. <laughs> Meanwhile, on, on the Oregon coast, we have them in the millions and no one, you know, even looks at them. Uh, but I have talked to people. Someone was on my tour last year, finally, who had harvested and eaten some. And he said they were kind of a cross between uh, what crab and lobster, which was really surprising to me. Um, you don't eat the shell. You're, you're going to want to eat that leathery neck, which <laughs> I have texture issues. So I am in no rush to try that. Um, but I've heard good things. <laughs> as far as harvest, I want to follow this up real quick. Um, within the marine reserves, there's five marine reserves on the Oregon coast. Within those marine reserves and marine protected areas as well, which can border marine reserves, um, those areas you can't harvest things from. Uh, this, these are things you would learn if you got your, you know, your 
your shellfish license once a year type of thing. There'll be all these regulations and things. So you got to go to beaches where it's legal to harvest these animals. Um, again, in marine protected areas and the marine reserves up and down the coast, no take. You can't harvest anything. All the creatures there are protected. Um, and that's why it's actually better tide pooling, better you know, low tide activities in these marine reserves because you'll see a lot more because of the protection. Um, even, I mean, the marine reserves extend three miles out into the ocean as well, as far as protection goes. So this whole big chunk of land and sea is super protected. Um, so all the animals can just continue to live and eat and breed and thrive, hopefully. Well, Jamie, we um, can't let you go without talking about your photography. Um, this is Aww. how I first, um, learned about you seeing your pictures on uh, the walls at Yahats Brewing and, um, it's incredible work. Folks who want to check it out can, um, um, check out your Instagram page, girl in water photography is the handle. And it is just like, we talk about all of these crazy alien worlds. You document that so well. And I wonder if you could just talk for a minute about how you do that. Yeah. Um, thank you for bringing that up. It throughout the course of my life, like the sciencey, you know, um, marine educator side has always been a lot more public facing. Uh, and then my art has always been like a really personal thing. So finding Instagram as an elder millennial in 2017 um, <laughs> blew my mind. I was like, wait, what? And so essentially, yeah, my Instagram's a gallery of just the years of exploring the tide pools on the Oregon coast. Um, I do not travel far for any of these photos, like maybe 20 miles most. Um, so it's all very region specific to the central Oregon coast area. Um, it That's probably the best look into my soul <laughs> is, are my photos. Um, it's, it's how I, I feel like it's a good representation of how I feel when I'm in the tide pools just very connected, um, curious, just always kind of observing. Uh, it, it goes back to an activity my mom used to do with us when we first moved here. Um, she'd want to, you know, have a nice relaxing day at the beach. So we'd go to places like the Cape Perpetua area and she would park the car and pop the back and just sit back there and read books and have us down in the tide pools where she could still see us but we would just be down there exploring and um doing things like okay for the next 10 minutes you both go down there and you're just going to sit there quietly and see what comes up around you you know let your surroundings kind of open back up because they're not afraid of stomping and things like that just being one and with a part of those environments is just <sighs> that's where my photography came from and my photography is really special to me. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my soul work. I think <laughs> like in going through, you know, like marine biology and, and colleges and all this stuff, internships and things, again, the, the science aspect of it was always the more important part. And so a lot of my artistic stuff was kind of pushed to the side for years and years. Cause it was just like, let's go, let's, <laughs> let's do as much as we can at this part in our life and see as much. And you know, learn how to train different animals and things. I worked in Bahamas for a while and Disney and like just hit the ground so hard running. And so to come back here to the Oregon coast, which is where it all started, um, to come back to the central coast, which is like my favorite 
place in the entire world, um, the photos are kind of a reflection of all of that, I think. So, well, Jamie, your love for what you do is clearly shines through, especially after talking with you, getting to know you a bit more. Um, If folks listening to this um, are getting the same message, want to come out, visit you, get a tour or tour with you, um, where can they get more information or where can they find you? Yes. Um, So actually they're going, the tours are going live tomorrow. Um, I've been working on that all day up until right now, uh, putting up all the tour links and stuff so people can sign up. They are free tours, uh, which I don't know, that just makes my heart so happy to make this easily accessible for anyone who can come down here. Um, the tours will go live tomorrow on our website, caperpetualcollaborative.org. Um, you can go on our events tab and there are going to be a ton of tours this year because we're opening up a third location at Hasita Head. So we'll be touring Yahut State Park, Bob Creek, and Hasita Head Lighthouse uh, for the next few months up until September 1st. So you can sign up for dates on there. Um, you can donate if you'd like, but no pressure. Um, and then if you're not able to get on the tours as well, we have a solid group of local volunteers that come out. We'll set up interpretive tables at the start of the tour. So while there's We only let 10 people on the tours at a time because we want to make sure that these sensitive environments aren't being overloaded (laughs) because the whole thing is we're protecting these areas. uh, So we don't want to, you know, have too many people walking around these places at a time. So 10 people per tour, but these volunteer tables at the start will also have things like ID sheets, tide tables, binoculars. Uh, We have traveling microscopes. You can look at plankton, things like that. So you can still have a nice little introduction and all the tools you'll need to get out there on your own during that tide. Uh, So you won't miss out even if you don't get on one of the tours. Amazing. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, Girl in Water Photography on Instagram, if anyone wants to find you there. Um, And I'm sure if you head out to the tide pools around Yahats, go down to Bob Creek or something like that, maybe we'll see you uh, bopping around the tide pools too. Oh, you will. Oh, you will. Really early, so just have that in your mind. Some of them start at 7 a.m. But it's when the, honestly, the best times to go tide pooling are those super early morning minus tides. It's it's truly a different world. I think it's a life-changing experience that everyone should try to have at least once. So come on out. (laughs) Well, Jamie, thank you so much for coming on today and telling us all about this. It's been such a pleasure. Oh, thank you guys so much. I appreciate it. Well, folks, until next time, you can watch our videos on the Oregonians YouTube channel and view all of our travel and outdoors coverage on OregonLive.com slash travel, as well as HereIsOregon.com. Please leave us a rating or review if you enjoy the show. And if you want to support this podcast and our local journalism, please consider a subscription to Oregon Live. You can find details at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Also, if you're a fan of the show and you are interested in potentially sponsoring it, you can get in touch with our marketing people at advertise at Oregonian.com. This episode of the show was produced by me, Vicki Connor, alongside Jamie Hale. Stay safe and happy travels, everyone. Until next time, we leave you with this 10 seconds of Zen.